0: Chapter 2, Part 5 of Our Village, Volume 1, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher Hobart, 2020. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1. Walks in the Country, Part 5. The Hard Summer. August 15th. Cold, cloudy, windy and wet. Here we are in the midst of the dog days, clustering merrily round the warm hearth like so many crickets, instead of chirruping in the green fields like that other merry insect, the grasshopper, shivering under the Jupiter pluvius of England, the watery St. Switham, peering at that scarce personage, the Sun, when he happens to make his appearance, as intently as astronomers look after a comet or the common people stare at a balloon exclaiming against the cold weather just as we used to exclaim against the warm what a change from last year is the first sentence you hear go where you may everybody remarks it and everybody complains of it and yet in my mind it has its advantages or at least its compensations as everything in nature has if we would only take the trouble to seek for them Last year, in spite of the love which we are now pleased to profess towards that ardent luminary, not one of the sun's numerous admirers had courage to look him in the face. There was no bearing the world till he had said good-night to it. Then we might stir, then we began to wake and to live. All day long we languished under his influence in a strange dreaminess too hot to work, too hot to read, too hot to write, too hot even to talk, sitting hour after hour in a green arbour, embowered in leafiness, letting thought and fancy float as they would. Those daydreams were pretty things in their way, there's no denying that, but then If one half of the world were to dream through a whole summer like the sleeping beauty in the wood, what would become of the other? The only office requiring the slightest exertion which I performed in that warm weather was watering my flowers. Common sympathy called for that labour. The poor things withered and faded and pined away. They almost, so to say, panted for draught. Moreover, If I had not watered them myself, I suspect that no one else would, for water last year was nearly as precious hereabout as wine. Our land springs were dried up, our wells were exhausted, our deep ponds were dwindling into mud, and geese and ducks and pigs and laundresses used to look with a jealous and suspicious eye on the few and scanty half-buckets of that impure element which my trusty lackey was fain to filch for my poor geraniums and campanulas and tuber roses. We were forced to smuggle them in through my faithful adherent's territories, the stable, to avoid lectures within doors, and at last even that resource failed. My garden, my blooming garden, the joy of my eyes, was forced to go waterless like its neighbours, and became shriveled, scorched and sunburnt like them. It really went to my heart to look at it. On the other side of the house matters were still worse. What a dusty world it was when about sunset we became cool enough to creep into it. Flowers in the court looking fit for a hortus Sicus, mummies of plants dried as in an oven, hollyhocks once pink turned into Quakers, cloves smelling of dust dusty world. May herself looked of that complexion. So did Lizzie. So did all the houses, windows, chickens, children, trees and pigs in the village. So, above all, did the shoes. No foot could make three plunges into that abyss of pulverised gravel, which had the impudence to call itself a hard road, without being clothed with a coat a quarter of an inch thick. Woe to white gowns and woe to black. Drab was your only wear. And then, when we were out of the street, what a toil it was to mount the hill, climbing with weary steps and slow upon the brown turf by the wayside, slippery, hot and hard as a rock. And then, if we happened to meet a carriage coming along the middle of the road, the bottomless middle, what a sandy whirlwind it was choking, what suffocation! No state could be more pitiable, except indeed that of the travellers who carried this misery about with them. I shall never forget the plight in which we met the coach one evening in last August, full an hour after its time, steeds and driver, carriage and passengers, all one dust.' The outsides and the horses and the coachman seemed reduced to a torpid quietness, the resignation of despair. They had left off trying to better their condition and taken refuge in a wise and patient hopelessness, bent to endure in silence the extremity of ill. The six insides, on the contrary, were still fighting against their fate, vainly struggling to ameliorate their hapless destiny. They were visibly grumbling at the weather, scolding at the dust, and heating themselves like a furnace by striving against the heat. How well I remember the fat gentleman without his coat, who was wiping his forehead and heaving up his wig, and certainly uttering that English ejaculation, which to our national reproach is the phrase of our language best known on the continent. And that poor boy, red-hot, all in a flame, whose mamma, having divested her own person of all superfluous apparel, was trying to relieve his sufferings by the removal of his neckerchief, an operation which he resisted with all his might. How perfectly I remember him, as well as the pale girl who sat opposite, fanning herself with her bonnet into an absolute fever. They vanished after a while into their own dust, but I have them all before my eyes at this moment, a companion picture to Hogarth's afternoon, a standing lesson to the grumblers at cold summers. For my part, I really like this wet season. It keeps us within, to be sure, rather more than is agreeable. But then we are at least awake and alive there, and the world out of doors is so much the pleasanter when we can get abroad. Everything does well, except those fastidious bipeds men and women. Corn ripens, grass grows, fruit is plentiful. There's no lack of birds to eat it and there's not been such a wasp season these dozen years. My garden wants no watering and is more beautiful than ever, beating my old rival in that primitive art, the pretty wife of the little mason, out and out. Measured with mine, her flowers are naught. Look at those hollyhocks like pyramids of roses, those garlands of the convolvulus major of all colours hanging about that tall pole like the wreathy hopbine, those magnificent dusky cloves, breathing of the spice islands, those flaunting double dahlias, those splendid scarlet geraniums, and the fierce and warlike flowers, the tiger lilies. Oh, how beautiful they are! Besides, the weather clears sometimes, It has cleared this evening, and here are we, after a merry walk up the hill, almost as quick as in the winter, bounding lightly along the bright green turf of the pleasant common, enticed by the gay shouts of a dozen clear young voices to linger a while and see the boys play at cricket. I plead guilty to a strong partiality towards that unpopular class of beings, country boys. I have a large acquaintance amongst them, and I can almost say that I know good of many and harm of none. In general, they're an open, spirited, good-humoured race with the proneness to embrace the pleasures and eschew the evils of their condition, a capacity for happiness quite unmatched in man or woman or a girl. They are patient, too, and bear their fate as scapegoats, for all sins whatsoever are laid as a matter of course at their door, whether at home or abroad, with amazing resignation, and considering the many lies of which they are the objects, they tell wonderfully few in return. The worst that can be said of them is that they seldom, when grown to man's estate, keep the promise of their boyhood, but that is a fault to come, a fault that may not come and ought not to be anticipated. It is astonishing how sensible they are to notice from their betters, or those whom they think such. I do not speak of money, or gifts, or praise, or the more coarse and common briberies. They are more delicate courtiers. A word, a nod, a smile, or the mere calling of them by their names is enough to ensure their hearts and their services.' Half a dozen of them, poor urchins, have run away now to bring us chairs from their several homes. Thank you, Joe Kirby, you're always first. Yes, that's just the place. I'll see everything there. Have you been in yet, Joe? Oh, no, ma'am, I go in next. Oh, I'm glad of that, and now's the time. Oh, really, that was a pretty ball of Jem Usden's. I was sure it would go to the wicket.' ''Run, Joe, they're waiting for you.'' There was small need to bid Joe Kirby make haste. I think he is, next to a racehorse or a greyhound or a deer, the fastest creature that runs, the most completely alert and active. Joe is mine a special friend and leader of the tender juveniles, as Joel Brent is of the adults. In both instances, this post of honour was gained by merit, even more remarkably so in Joe's case than in Joel's. For Joe is a less boy than many of his companions, some of whom are fifteeners and sixteeners, quite as tall and nearly as old as Tom Coper, and are poorer than all, as may be conjectured, from the lamentable state of that patched round frock, the ragged condition of those unpatched shoes, which would encumber, if anything could, the light feet that wear them. But why should I lament the poverty that never troubles him? Joe is the merriest and happiest creature that ever lived twelve years in this wicked world. Care cannot come near him. He hath a perpetual smile on his round, ruddy face and a laugh in his hazel eye that drives the witch away. He works at yonder farm on the top of the hill, where he is in such repute for intelligence and good humour that he has the honour of performing all the errands of the house, of helping the maid, the mistress and the master, in addition to his own stated office of Carter's boy. There he works hard from five till seven, and then he comes here to work still harder under the name of play, batting, bowling and fielding as if for life, filling the place of four boys, being at a pinch a whole eleven. The late Mr. Knyvet, the King's organist, who used in his own person to sing 20 parts at once of the Hallelujah Chorus, so that you would have thought he had a nest of nightingales in his throat, was but a type of Joe Kirby. There is a sort of ubiquity about him. He thinks nothing of being in two places at once, and for pitching a ball, William Gray himself is nothing to him. It goes straight to the mark like a bullet.' He is king of the cricketers from 8 to 16, both inclusive, and an excellent ruler he makes. Nevertheless, in the best-ordered states, there will be grumblers, and we have an opposition here in the shape of Jem Usden. Jem Usden is a stunted lad of 13, or thereabout, lean, small and short, yet strong and active. His face is of an extraordinary ugliness, colourless, withered and haggard, with a look of extreme age, much increased by hair so light that it might pass for white than flaxen. He is constantly arrayed in the blue cap and old-fashioned coat, the costume of an endowed school to which he belongs, where he sits still all day and rushes into the field at night, fresh, untired and ripe for action, to scold and brawl and storm and bluster. He hates Joe Kirby, whose immovable good humour, broad smiles and knowing nods must certainly be very provoking to so fierce and turbulent a spirit. And he has himself, being except by rare accident no great player, the preposterous ambition of wishing to be manager of the sports. In short, he is a demagogue in embryo, with every quality necessary to a splendid success in that vocation. A strong voice, a fluent utterance, an incessant iteration, and a frontless impudence. He is a great scholar, too, to use the country phrase. His piece, as our village schoolmaster terms a fine sheet of flourishing writing, something between a valentine and a sampler enclosed within a border of little prints, His last, I remember, was encircled by an engraved history of Moses, beginning at the finding in the bulrushes, with Pharaoh's daughter dressed in a rose-coloured gown and blue feathers. His piece is not only the admiration of the school, but of the parish, and is sent triumphantly round from house to house at Christmas to extort halfpence and sixpences from all encouragers of learning. Montem in miniature. The mosaic history was so successful that the produce enabled Jem to purchase a bat and a ball, which, besides adding to his natural arrogance, for the little pedant actually began to mutter against being eclipsed by a dunce and went so far as to challenge Joe Kirby to a trial in practice or the rule of three. So the bat and ball gave him, when compared with the general poverty, a most unnatural preponderance in the cricket state. He had the ways and means in his hands, for alas, the hard winter had made sad havoc among the bats, and the best ball was a bad one. He had the ways and means, could withhold the supplies, and his party was beginning to wax strong. When Joe received a present of two bats and a ball for the youngsters in general, and himself in particular, and Jem's adherents left him on the spot. They ratted to a man that very evening. Notwithstanding this desertion, their forsaken leader has in nothing relaxed from his pretensions or his ill-humour. He still quarrels and brawls as if he had a faction to back him, and thinks nothing of contending with both sides, the ins and the outs, secure of out-talking the whole field." He has been squabbling these ten minutes and is just marching off now with his own bat he never deigned to use one of Joe's in his hand. Oh, what an ill-conditioned hobgoblin it is! And yet there is something bold and sturdy about him too. I should miss Jem Usden. Ah, there is another deserter from the party, my friend the little Hussar, I do not know his name, and call him after his cap and jacket. He is a very remarkable person, about the age of eight years, the youngest piece of gravity and dignity I ever encountered, short and square and upright and slow, with a fine bronzed flat visage, resembling those convertible signs, the broad face and the Saracen's head, which, happening to be next-door neighbours in the town of B, I never knew apart resembling indeed any face that is open-eyed and immovable, the very sign of a boy. He stalks about with his hands in his breeches' pockets like a piece of machinery, sits leisurely down when he ought to field, and never gets farther in batting than to stop the ball. His is the only voice never heard in the melee. I doubt indeed if he have one, which may be partly the reason of a circumstance that I record to his honour, his fidelity to Jem Usden, to whom he has adhered through every change of fortune with a tenacity proceeding perhaps from an instinctive consciousness that the loquacious leader talks enough for two. He is the only thing resembling a follower that our demagogue possesses and is cherished by him accordingly. Jem quarrels for him, scolds for him, pushes for him, And but for Joe Kirby's invincible good humour and a just discrimination of the innocent from the guilty, the activity of Jem's friendship would get the poor Hussar ten drubbings a day. Oh, but it's growing late. The sun has set a long time. Only see what a gorgeous colouring has spread itself over those parting masses of clouds in the west. What a train of rosy light. We shall have a fine, sunshiny day tomorrow, a blessing not to be undervalued, in spite of my late vituperation of heat. Shall we go home now? And shall we take the longest, but prettiest road, that by the green lane? This way, to the left, round the corner of the common, past Mr. Wells's cottage, and our path lies straight before us. How snug and comfortable that cottage looks! its little yard all alive with the cow and the mare and the colt almost as large as the mare and the young foal and the great yard dog, all so fat, fenced in with hay rick and wheat rick and bean stack and backed by the long garden, the spacious drying ground and the fine orchard and that large field quartered into four different crops. How comfortable this cottage looks! and how well the owners earn their comforts. They're the most prosperous pair in the parish. She, a laundress, with twenty times more work than she can do, unrivaled in flounces and shirt frills and such delicacies of the craft. He, partly a farmer, partly a farmer's man, tilling his own ground and then tilling other people's, affording a proof, even in this declining age, when the circumstances of so many worthy members of the community seem to have an alacrity in sinking, that it is possible to amend them by sheer industry. He, who was born in the workhouse and bred up as a parish boy, has now, by mere manual labour, risen to the rank of a landowner, pays rates and taxes, grumbles at the times, and is called Master Wells, the title next to Mr., that by which Shakespeare was called, What Would Man Have More? His wife, besides being the best laundress in the county, is a comely woman still. There she stands at the spring, dipping up water for tomorrow, the clear, deep, silent spring, which sleeps so peacefully under its high flowery bank, red with the tall spiral stalks of the foxglove and their rich pendant bells, Blue with the beautiful forget-me-not, that gem-like blossom which looks like a living jewel of turquoise and topaz. It is almost too late to see its beauty, and here is the pleasant shady lane, where the high elms will shut out the little twilight that remains. Ah, but we shall have the fairies' lamps to guide us, the stars of the earth, the glow-worms. Here they are, three almost together, do you not see them? One seems tremulous, vibrating, as if on the extremity of a leaf of grass. The others are deeper in the hedge, in some green cell on which their light falls with an emerald lustre. Well, I hope, my friends, the cricketers will not come this way home. I would not have the pretty creatures removed for more than I care to say, and in this matter I would hardly trust Joe Kirby. Boys so love to stick them in their hats." But this lane is quite deserted, it's only a road from field to field, no one comes here at this hour. They are quite safe, and I shall walk here tomorrow and visit them again. And now, good night, beautiful insects, lamps of the fairies, good night. End of chapter 2, part 5